So yes, it was 18 in a row, because I was there 18 years. I'm James Zug, and this is Outside the Glass. A couple weeks ago, Andrew Shelley, the CEO of the World Squash Federation, announced that he was stepping down and, and retiring from the World Squash Federation. So I have an interview here of uh, Andrew and I. We uh, sat down in a quiet hotel cafe in Kiev. Andrew, of course, uh, after leaving the SRA, was the uh, head of WISPA, the Women's Pro Squash Tour, uh, in 2010, uh, left there and uh, has been running World Squash uh, ever since. So quite a remarkable career in the game, and um, uh, it's really fun to, uh, to go back to the early years uh, of his career and, and hear about the, uh, the way they used to run tournaments. So enjoy. All right, Andrew Shelley, how did you first uh, start in squash? Where did you first hear the game? Did you know the game growing up and play or how did it all start? No, I was actually playing soccer or football as we would call it um, and tried it a couple of times when our games were cancelled. We had waterlogged pitches. Meanwhile, wait, wait. You're saying it rains in in England? Oh, occasionally. Yeah. It was, it's virtually desert, but not quite. Um, and I was actually working at the time as publicity assistant, or should we call it gopher, for Rolex. I just finished college, mm. and um, we sponsored the British Amateur Clothes. There was amateur status in those yeah. days. What year? What year is this? This was 1976. I. Um, and how old were you? Twenty. Hmm. And you hadn't you hadn't really played at all, or no? I played I played occasionally three, three or four times, literally three or four as times a, as a, a child with a friend. Yeah. No, not not as a child as a, at that time um, when our football was yeah. cancelled because the, just had just been built was the Wembley uh, Squash Centre. Yeah. The Wembley Squash so I'll try that again. The Wembley Squash Centre had fourteen or fifteen courts. Right. Pay, pay and play. Yeah. So completely public. tried it. Yep. Completely public. How, how much did you have to pay? To play, was it like a pound? Or? Um, I have no clue whatsoever anymore. Um, my memory lasts till about breakfast time this morning. Before that, no idea. Um, but it, it was pay and play, mm. and uh, we tried it. Mm. Meanwhile, we sponsored this event. Mm. We got a guy who would organise it for us, and we just turned up for the finals. But we took a subscription out to Squash Player magazine, mm-hmm. and in it was a job for. Tournament and affiliation secretary of mm. what was called the SRA then. It's England Squash now. Yeah. Um, I applied and the, I found out afterwards that the SRA, as it was called, had a, a routine where they always picked people unsuitable to the job, and I got it. Uh, and I and I. Why did they pick uh, people unsuitable? Well, I knew nothing about squash. Yes, yeah, so you didn't, right? <laughs> but yeah. then, but then I started doing events and I realized everybody else wanted to watch the whole time whereas it needed somebody at events who was actually going to be behind the scenes and so they thought well he doesn't care about squash <laughs> I, we'll, don't, we'll put I, him, I don't know him. what they thought to be honest but anyway uh, I, I got a job and I, I said do you to, remember being interviewed oh yes and I, and I still know one of the people who interviewed me um, and at that time, squash was so small that there was only a few of us, and I literally ran all the club membership, all the individual membership, and all the events and coaching. All in one. 
all in one. How, uh, how, so when you started, how many people were on staff at uh, the SRA? Uh, four or five. Four or five. Full time. Yeah, and I was there for, for a year and I became the longest serving person. So everybody left. Yeah, well, they, but it was, you know, it, was, it was a very Turn small over. organization. Yeah. Um, Where were the offices? The, the offices were initially in, um, uh, well, it's Brompton Road, right opposite Harrods, actually. Wonderful view because they put in a, a bus lane which went contrary to the traffic. Mm. And watching tourists get mown over <laughs> was just a delight. <laughs> and occasionally I would work as well. But, but I, I said to my then girlfriend, well, I'll do this for a year or two, then I'll get a proper job. Well, I married her, and she's still waiting for me to get a proper job. It's been uh, 40... Uh, 40 years, yes. Over 40 over, years, yeah. 40, 42 years. Mm. Um, so there's four people on staff, mm. and uh, no computers. Oh, perish the thought. And, and telex, we, fax? We had, we had telex, and, mm-hmm. and, and we got fax, and we obviously kept the pigeons in a loft, and it was, it was very high-tech. Smoke, smoke signal. <laughs> but um, it, 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 was, it was a great time for Squash. Mm. You know, Jonah was... Um, Jeff Hunt. What, well, jo- well, Jonah was bringing the game mm. to the public because he, right. he, his great charisma... Um, but we, we as the SRA, although it's, it started before I got there, actually owned the centre court at Wembley Squash Centre where I started. We were party to it with, with the owners of Wembley. Mm. And so all our championships were run there. Right. And it, it was a great venue. It was a three-wall three wall glass? No, 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 just a glass back. Just the glass back. Glass back. But, but it was in a sort of a, a pit where you It was in a pit over. and it had um, television camera positions, mm, mm-hmm. and indeed a radio commentary booth mm. yeah, at that time. A few years later, in 1980, mm. we then had the, a glass back court that we put on the stage at the Wembley Conference Centre right. next door. Right. Initially, before we had the all-glass, well, it was all-perspex court a couple of years Classic, later, yeah. and, and, well, the rest is history from that. It went yeah. from perspex to glass to from coloured floor, uh, wooden floors to coloured floors, and, and so on and so forth. But that was the start of it. So tell me more about the Wembley. Uh, I think when people hear Wembley, they mm. always think of the football stadium, the mm. spires. And but this is unrelated or, no, or no, totally related. next door, but, but not in the stadium. Wembley, Wembley Stadium Limited, which was a private company, owned the stadium. Mm. It owned the Wembley Arena, which is a concert venue. Yeah. The Wembley Conference Center, which its name yeah. was a bit of a giveaway, and a bingo hall. The bingo hall became the squash center. Nobody was playing bingo. Uh, well, obviously not enough. The fall of bingo <laughs> led to the yeah. rise of squash. Well, uh, bingo is very popular in England, <laughs> but, they, but, so. it, but in 1974 they built this 15. And it, why why would they go? I mean, what was happening to, to build such a huge squash facility? Well, squash was taking off, yeah, and exactly. and it worked uh, for a long time. Mm-hmm. So, did they have anything else like a uh, locker rooms, a bar? Uh, was it a full fledged club? Very primitive. Mm. Yeah, it was it was the courts. There was Four four courts along the front. They weren't glass bags. They they just had a gallery plus, on top. Yeah, right. Plus the center court. Mm. Plus all the courts behind. None of which were glass bags. At that time, yeah, you didn't have right. glass bags. That's right. That's very unusual. Um, yeah. But it was it was it was very popular. And of course, the British Open then start was was a was a major event. Mm. It became major still because we spent nine years at the conference center mm. with high tech sponsorship. Mm-hmm. 
having booked the venue normally two or three years ahead, mm. all the masters players, the ex-professionals plus the amateurs, mm. the game had gone open by 1980, but yeah. they would come and they would play, play. every and meet their friends, That's right. very much as the World Masters does now. Exactly. That's and right. it, was, it was a terrific atmosphere. That's and, right. and, and that was played during the British Open. Oh, together. The, it, it, was, together. it was the whole thing open and then all yeah. the way through to the every, 80 plus. Every January, I used to get a phone call from Hashim Khan who was in his 60s and then into the 70s, saying, Andrew, is it okay to play in the vintage? Because over 65 was called vintage. I said, is it okay? We'd be honoured if you did. And we would put him on the centre court because everybody wanted to watch him. Yeah. He'd lose, he'd make a speech, and it was just wonderful. But that was the nature of the, yeah. uh, the intimacy of it all, the sport. It's amazing. You got there at this moment where if you'd arrived five years earlier, the SRA and what was happening in squash in England was completely different. It was a real inflection point where mm. things were taking off. Yeah. And the fact that you came into the game, A, via the Wembley Club, uh, which was becoming the famous site, and B, mm. because of sponsorship. Yeah, well, I, right? I, I came in because of that ad in right. Squash Player magazine. And somebody sent me the ad a few years ago. I mean, looked at an old copy. Yeah. And I would have been paid £1,800 a year. Well, there you go. You got I mean, wealthy. I, You're making big yeah. bucks. <laughs> I've nearly, nearly beaten that now. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell your wife. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I, I did promise to get a proper job. But... <laughs> um, so uh, what, were, what were some of the, the challenges working at the SRA in, in the 70s? Uh, what, what, were the, what were the big issues? Was well, it going to amateur, opening up the game was yeah, a big I mean, issue, it was, right? It was, it, it was an issue at a time. There, there were still people who thought that the game should remain with amateur status. Mm -hmm. But yeah, sport generally had moved away from that. Mm -hmm. And in 1979, we ran the British Closed as a non uh, sectional event. Mm -hmm. the, the last British amateur was 1980 January, where um, Johnny Leslie and Ross Norman played the final, and that was it. The game was the game was open. We were open, yeah. and um, yeah. it was it was it wasn't so much there were challenges. Of course, there were challenges bringing in the the glass court because we didn't have experience of it. Uh, bringing bringing in. The what was called the Amex, the, the Premier League, which is mm. now the PSL. Mm. Um, right, and that, That's, and that, that started everyone. when you when you were there. I started that yes in 1983, fourth season. Was um, how, how did that all come about? Did you have a sponsor ready to go? We, we we I can't remember how, but we snared American Express because the guy who was the commercial or marketing manager, a guy called John Peterson, I remember his name, was a squash enthusiast, mm. and. Amex sponsored the league and the teams how did you create it uh, how do you make literally teams? from scratch we invited invited clubs mm. and and what it did was it changed the face of squash in England because mm. before then there was a pro tour mm. events I mean their names are history now but pro to right lookers masters mm. the regional events east of England west of England You're right um, exactly the event at Bellevue in Manchester there was there were several events but these clubs, or Chichester, yeah. these clubs then joined the league mm. and didn't need to have their events because they were seeing the top players during the season. Right, on a Tuesday night. Yep. 
Yeah, it was mm. uh, it was it was it was once a week, and obviously tied into the calendar. Mm. I mean, the calendar itself was was much, much more much, basic. Right. The, there was there used to be spring in Europe. Uh, <laughs> you mean climate wise or yeah. uh... well, no for, for squash wise? Yeah. What would happen is that the players from literally. We're, we're trying to be very English here, so we're having tea. Yes, absolutely. While we, uh, that's perfect. Thank you so much. Early in the new year, all the players from Australia, New Zealand, and other parts of the world would fly into London. They would come to the SRA office, mm. pick up all the entry forms, because it was all paper then. They would fill them in. Give them, hand them right to you. Hand to me. I'd fax them to the organisers. They'd go away to Dunlop, who were around the corner, a number of them, pick up their rackets. Then they would be bedridden for two weeks because they'd come in a T-shirt and shorts, and then they'd start playing. And it was that was the way it worked. So you, you spent a lot of your day sending and receiving faxes, right? Yeah, I mean, actually, being the player's manager stroke agent in a, in a completely unpaid way. But, but you know, we didn't have the internet in those days. That's right. yeah. And uh, it was... It was done differently. You'd have to pick up the entry forms and post physically, them physically, yeah, to or fax them to the to the organizer, and then then and of course seeding in those days was done in 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 a, in a different way as well. Mm. So in England we had a seeding committee, and so when one of these tournaments like the East of England, West of England, mm. or, or mm-hmm. indeed the Nationals came along, I would send them by fax the entry list, and they'd. They'd look at it and they'd say, "Ah, oh, well, so and so lost to so and so because he'd had a heavy night the night before, or whatever, or he was suffering from this, that." And they'd seed it based upon their knowledge, as opposed to anything. Oh, he's objective. playing very well right now, or, so he should yeah, be. Or, yeah, yeah, those those, those sort kinds of, of things. subjective. Right. Uh, it worked, um, but it was subjective. Uh, Were there uh, world rankings back in the seventies? No. No, you know, where you could look and say, well, he's ranked three, he's ranked 18th, he shouldn't be, you know. No, we, we had our own one, mm. which was based upon an algorithm by, by which everybody had a, a, a position. And if you beat somebody who had a better, mm. won't call it ranking, but, mm. but points, you would move up a, a, a percentage of the difference. Mm. If you lost to somebody who was below you, you moved down a mm. percentage of the difference. Mm. So we, we had a rough figure then. It but, worked. But yeah. it, it worked. But the seedings were done by a seeding panel yeah. for, for these events. And they would be doing them week in, week out, um, based upon who was having heavy nights and what have you. And, <laughs> um, but but the, the, the ISPA, which was the forerunner of PSA, yeah. as you yeah. know, was, was formed during the late 70s. Well, officially memory. in 73, yeah, but uh, yeah. it probably took a little while um, to so get going. So rankings started to come in then. Mm. For the women, it was 83, 84. Yeah, um, right. But before then, it was it was as, as, as per the panels. So, yeah, so, so did people, the players complain that they were poorly seated? I, do, I, I don't think or so. They knew that I, they I mean, knew I, it was uh, difficult. I, I, I'm sure people must have complained, but frankly, I can't remember. And it was never anything that was... Um, Dramatic. Uh, draw, mm. No, mm. no. And uh, it, as I say, it was it was it was a slightly different world. And, and of course, the people themselves understood that world, so they knew mm. that this was how it there is. was not yeah. a better system then yeah. until right. until rankings came in. Yeah. And of course, when rankings came in, there were so few tournaments overall. And if you take the British season as as the as the main one, 
they were concentrated mm. in the first half of the year. So the way that the rankings work now on a rolling year, month by month, wouldn't have been very effective. When when Whisper, the women's tour started, mm. rankings were every two months. They right, weren't, so they exactly. weren't monthly. For, for a long time. Yeah. One of these days, I must show you the very first Whisper ranking. It's, it, I mean, it's, it's a type list, and number one in the very first ranking, 80, 84, was Susan D., which was obviously Susan Devoy, right. but it wasn't a surname and there wasn't a country. It was a, it was, it was so a different, small. It was so small and they just circulated amongst <laughs> themselves. They all knew who they were. Susan D. Susan, <laughs> Susan D was number one, and I think Vicky C may have been number two or whoever it was, and um, and so it went on. And it was, it, it needed professionalizing, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. As, as 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 began to happen with both right. of them. Well, and you eventually came in there yourself. Mm. Um, so the the. Would the highlight of your of your year be the the British Open and and going along to that and 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 helping run that or or were you sort of busy the whole year round and and that was just another tournament? Busy the whole year round, but but run events. I mean, I was tournament director for twenty British Opens uh, overall consecutively, uh, eighteen consecutively when I was at the SRA, and then I did a couple afterwards in the early two thousands. When it when a, a new promoter took it over, yeah, right. essentially what eighteen happened, in a row, yeah, wow. uh, more than more than <laughs> 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 uh, But uh, um, it, yes, I mean, it, it, what happened was coincidentally. I mean, it wasn't anything other than coincidence. When I when I left the SRA in nineteen ninety four, the high tech sponsorship finished, and the, the same year. The same year, mm. uh, and the British Open started to move around. That's right. It went to it went to Wales and Birmingham and yeah. Aberdeen and so forth, and That's indeed right. Nottingham. Yeah. Uh, and Nottingham was, was was one of the ones I remember that, that I was, if you like, brought back by the promoter, mm. John Beddington, yeah. who was partnering with John Nimick at the time. That's right. Um, to to help, but yes, it was eighteen in a row because I was there eighteen years. Wow, mm. wow, and so I, that tournament. Completely evolved in those eighteen years. I mean, every, like nothing stayed the same. I mean, the no. I mean, well, the first ones were on the glass back walled court at the Wembley Swash Centre in the pit. Yeah. Yes, in, yeah. yes, yes. Stadium seating. Yeah, it was just two hundred and forty seats mm-hmm. in in rows going back. I mean, at the time, it was it was a big setting, but it was just literally 20, 240 seats behind the back wall, with a little gap in the middle where you could put a TV camera, and it had the camera pit. Which was right. one of the first, or probably the first, mm. where you could go into a sort of water-filled little area underneath the court and uh, paddle and take photographs. Yeah, Steve Lyne was happy, uh, happy yes. about that. Well, it was uh, that, it, that was, was after Steve, him. but yeah. uh, sorry, yeah. before Steve, yeah. but but he wasn't he wasn't too much after, and of course he came in yeah. during the the time where we started at, at with Wembley the last court, and, yeah. yeah, the first place. Yeah. Um, would, the, would you sell out every night? Was oh, it, yes. I mean, right. Well, in fact, there was one, one occasion at Wembley Conference Centre where mm. the reports were out that there were ticket touts outside. And then we thought, we've made it. And the two and a half thousand seats sold out. And people scalping tickets. And, and mm. because, because we had continuity of the, of the event... It meant that people bought the tickets year on year. Right. There was a, a year continuity ahead. of, and of and I know I'm coming. Yeah. 
But it was at the same same exact week every year, right? Pretty much, yes. Yeah. So because right. e- Easter was a bit of a nuisance right. um, because it moves, but it was it was essentially uh, April every year. Mm. And but it started the Wembley Conference Centre when it started, which was the court on the stage, but it was a glass back with a fan of seating as the the Perstorp Court. I sold the tickets as well from my living room table because of course it was all checks and it wasn't. And I people would mail checks. Mail checks. I. You know, I would sort out the, the tickets for the check. And you had a big it. paper map of, oh, the, yeah, all, of, the, all, uh, it, of the seating? It was all on paper, because that's how, how you did it in those days. Yeah. Um, it was, uh, <laughs> yes, it was funny times. The media was all over it as well, right? Well, of course, the difference then was there was squash media, hmm. because newspapers would, would retain somebody. And, and, of course, the squash magazines. At that point, there were two squash magazines on the bookstalls, right. sold that you could buy, yeah. getting getting yeah. on a train, yeah. and uh, and specific squash reporters, and indeed one or two of them using different names would write for different publications. So Richard Eaton, who you know, would yeah. would write under Richard Eaton, Richard Jago, uh, somebody Richards, I forget, and and he would you'd hear him dictating his copy. In a different phone. style. On the phone. Yeah, but on a phone in a different style to each person. So it looked individual. And yeah. He'd yeah. have to remember which character. Richard Jago was one of them, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and, 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 and there were there were journalists who followed the tour because that was the way that you got publicity as a, uh, from a event point of view, from a newspaper point of view. Yeah. They needed somebody there. Well, and they were interested, the newspapers, there were many newspapers yeah. at the time, right? And they were interested in... All sports and, mm. and squash was considered a sport to report on regularly. But, but once the internet came in, in a big way, then they would rely on the on the PSA results service yes. and Howard Harding and exactly. and indeed Howard initially worked for PSA Whisper and WSF as, right. as the World Squash Media Director. That's right. And although it wasn't intentional, to a great extent, he he ensured that the newspapers didn't need journalists. Right. Yeah. Uh, so, right, right. So, um, so they the 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 um, was it broadcast live on TV or was it uh, on delay or how did the how did the um, TV side of it go? From a British Open point of view, mm. we we were live on what was called Grandstand, which was the BBC's Saturday afternoon flagship sports program. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that time of the year, they'd be rug, rugby and snooker and, and horse racing, and we would be mm-hmm. uh, juggled in. Initially, there was not no, live. It was a it no, was no a, live. So they'd be say, okay, and it's two thirty now. Mm. We're going to yes. Wembley. Yep. And initially, there was even radio commentary. I mean, it was it was BBC uh, BBC radio. I mean, it's hilarious. Down the wall, down the wall, down the wall. Let down the wall. <laughs> it was impossible, but 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 they did commentate. Wow. Um, wow. And I, I actually uh, have got hold of a. A, a tape, tape of that? A t- no, a tape of the, of, of te- television. One one game, Jonah against Jeff Hunt, nineteen seventy two, and the the BBC commentator, whoever he was, was was a typical old fashioned English voice. Mm. If I can use that, mm. plummy, uh, plummy, and didn't sound as if he knew squash. He might have been a cricket but he, commentator, but he, but he reported on it, and it was, of course, you know, it was it was such a throwback, but. Yeah. Sweet in its way. <laughs> they, they, they were these um, pinnacle events uh, 
Yeah, I mean, those some of those matches, the the Jeff Hunt, mm. um, the Jonah Barrington matches, the Jeff Hunt and, and Jahangir. I mean, you know, these these were just the classic. Oh, uh, right. I mean, of those eighteen opens that you managed in a row, most of them had some dramatic storylines, right? Were you, were you just exhausted by the the tension no. of it and the? No, I mean... Or were you not even watching because you were busy working? I, I used to watch what I wanted to watch when I had a moment. But, but also, you know, we, we, in those days, we still had monitors. Mm. Because if something happened, you had to deal with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you'd, be, you'd be half looking on the, on the, on the centre court and play had stopped. And you think, why has play stopped? Mm. I mean, there was, a, there was a classic case where I saw play stop one year. This was the final. Rodney Martin against Jahangir Khan. It turned out when I went upstairs to see what the hell was going on that Jahangir wanted a change of referee. In the middle of the match? In the middle <clears> of the <throat> match. Um, so uh, I went on and, and he insisted to me that he wanted a change of referee. Mm. And I said, no, play on if, or concede if you wish. He was losing at the time. I, I mean, I didn't even really know. Was this in between the games? No. It was in the middle no, of the game? Stopped, stopped at a point. Bear in mind, I didn't even see it because I was I was half looking. And there's uh, no replay on the TV, and, right? And, and actually, I can't even remember why he wanted it, but but he was he was obviously losing, adamant, yeah. and it wasn't going his way. Um, and in the end, he played on and won. Mm, but of course, yeah, yeah, these things these these things happen. But yeah, I can I can well remember Jeff Hunt uh, actually sort of spitting blood at the end of a match against. Gamal a mm. lot because he he just run himself into a complete and utter state of exhaustion. It was extraordinary. And and, and seeing Jahangir win ten ten in a row and Susan Devoy winning hers and yeah. Well, now at the, at the time yeah. uh, in seventy, your first open was seventy six. Seventy seven. Seventy seven. I joined seventy six. Where, where were the women and the men playing together? No. Nope. So where the, were the women? Where was the women's British Open? The the women's British Open in. Uh, I think I'm right in saying it was the end of 76 or, or, or early 77. It was right. at Wembley Squash Centre. Oh. And I was asked to go along. Bear in mind, the SRA was men only initially. Right. Uh, I was asked to go along and set up the scoreboard for them because we had a, we owned a scoreboard as well, which was a, a wonderful large thing with, with lots of knobs on. With, with, but it worked electronically. But it was <laughs> of the era. <laughs> and I was, set, I was on, that, on the little gallery there setting it up and behind me, there was a, the first match was going on, and, and the score was rising and rising and rising. Mm. And this this Australian woman beat uh, an English international. Turned out to be Heather Mackay in her last British Open, um, the, the right. last one she won. That's right. Uh, it was so impressive to see her uh, take apart. These, these top players from not yep. just England but that in that particular match and yet physically she was no different to them yeah she was just unbeatable by them was there a, a big crowd watching that oh yes okay. yes, yes so they knew this was this amazing thing 16 years in a row yeah and... yeah I mean this was this was her last one that's right um, it was it was quite something did she say something when she walked off the court well, no, the this, was, this wasn't the final oh, this um, was... I, I, I did actually go to the final but I can't remember. You know, because that was a real historic moment. Mm. Oh, yes. She came back and, and won the World Open, the first World Open, official World Open. Mm. But, but the, her, you know, the British yeah. Open yeah. was 16. the pinnacle, mm. and she 
she set a record that um, we all say no record will ever get broken, but really, that, that, that's a record that you just can't see that, a game That's broken. not going to get bro- broken. I mean, now, it, it would be... Admittedly, there were fewer players in those days, right. and yeah. fewer players who were professional. Yeah. You know, it, right. It's a smaller pool, but it's still unbelievable. Now, I mean, if you take Jahangir, the, the men's, uh, he, he had five different opponents in the first five finals. So it wasn't just exactly. him beating the same person right. over again. Right, that's right. Uh, he, was, he was beating different players and they were queuing up. But eventually, there were one or two finals in the latter years where... He was hanging he, on. He wasn't on top of his game. Mm. But, but when, when you were doing well against him, you were mentally... Thinking, why am when, I doing? Yeah, when's this going to stop? Mm. And it stopped, of course, in Toulouse in in nineteen. Well, in in the um, not in the British Open, but mm. right. But um, he was able to maintain the British Open mm. aura mm. year after year, yeah. even though things weren't going well elsewhere. He would still win the Open. Yeah, and when when he when he lost that final to Ross Norman. Mm. It was it was a. Str- you were there. You were I there. there. Yeah, I was there. I, I think I may have been the only person who was there. At the his, his previous loss five and a half years before. Oh, you had seen British, it at the British Open. Um, and, and that one. But um, he, he, he struggled in that match because of the ball. Mm. Um, but but having, having lost it, I, I actually phoned the result through to the guy, Larry Halpin, his name was, his name still is, uh, who edited uh, Squash Magazine then. Mm. And he was out, and his wife took the message, because he'd asked me to. Mm. He didn't believe it. When he got home? Yeah, because... He called you back? Yeah. Yep. In, in Toulouse, he called me back. Um, because it hadn't happened, you know. It made the 10 o'clock news in England. The right. main main national TV news. Five and a half years, unbeaten. Mm. He would have got beaten sooner or later, but that was... A big he, story, yeah. It was a, it was a big story then... He struggled with the ball. Yeah, right. Because it, it was a new Merco ball with different type of dots on it. It was a, telvi- a ball for television, well, <coughs> right? For the well, initially, uh, two dentists from Carl Shorten made balls, uh, drilled holes in balls and put retroreflective material in. Right. So they looked like golf balls. Right. A company called Merco took, had the contract for, for the, British, uh, the world events that year mm. and indeed British. And what they did is they they made the retroreflective material like the fingers of a hand on both sides. So there was too much material and not enough rubber. So the ball skidded. Mm. And he was struggling to get the ball out of the corners because he was struggling to position himself. Right, right. But as I say, it was the same for both players. And he would have lost at some point. Yeah. But he, he just right. didn't look good in that match. Well, and then he went on to... Um not lose again for a while. Yeah, um, there was sort of like Joe DiMaggio in the in the baseball hitting streak. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, doesn't go, doesn't get hits that one game, and then he had another twenty games. Well, he won he... another two British Opens. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you, you and I emailed uh, a year or two ago about um, the development of the, of the portable court, and mm. you you witnessed you were sort of a part of that evolution, going mm. from a. A British Open with with a, a single glass back, um, all the way through to a you know portable, mm. um, beautiful, uh, semi beautiful court, mm. um, and you saw all the sort of different iterations along the way. Well, the the start was 1982. We we had sponsorship from ICI Perspex to build a court 
used for an event using what was called contravision, which was wallpapering the dots on the inside. Mm. Nobody knew whether it would work or not. So we set up this event called the World Masters, actually, and not, not Masters mm. Senior, but yeah. Masters Top Players, right. in a place called Granby Halls in Leicester. But ICI Perspex said they would only go ahead if it worked. So off we went to Blackpool, to their factory, six weeks before the event, put up the court. Where? Blackpool. Yeah, but where Where in Blackpool? Oh, it was in their warehouse. In a warehouse? In a warehouse. You, you fully set it up? Yep, yep. That, uh, that take, takes a day or two, right? Yeah. But you had to find out. Had to find out if it worked. And of course, you know, the, all the elements of floor, lighting, and, and so forth. I mean, there were, there'd been iterations before, as you say. But, yeah. and, and, and it did work. And therefore, six weeks later, Graham the, the the Jahangirs and Jeff mm. Hunts and whoever mm. came along and played. Was that the one that had some enormous number, 3,500? There was some tournament in England that had just a no. huge number no, of we, spectators. We, we we had the the Leaks. initial the initial record was two thousand nine hundred at Wembley, for the British Open. Yeah, which was technically two thousand six hundred, and my estimate of how many people were on the balcony, but that's another story. Um, but no, in nineteen eighty seven we had the final of the men's world team championship at the Albert Hall in London, or Royal Albert Hall, yeah. its proper name. On the stage. On the stage. Um, with the court facing which way? The, well, the sideways the, or the court faced on? faced the the main part of the horseshoe of the audience. Mm. But you but you could see and of course there's so many levels there and it was mm. it was it was three and a half thousand. And we could have got more in, but you just couldn't see from certain positions. But it was an awesome setting at the time. Um, and in those days the courts had a roof. So right. around the side you'd have the name of the event at the top level. Mm. Um, which which actually proved proved interesting when when the referee was sitting a long way away to, to actually throw the ball above the back wall but below the ceiling and sometimes they missed, so then we started having a ball boy giving the ball. <laughs> There's a ball. Wow. Um, and the the court itself uh, evolved, you know, perspex and all the different materials. Mm. You, I think you told me about something happening in in Malaysia where they coated the ball. Well, no, what 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 happened? Um, we, all the events used a normal wooden floor and a black ball. Mm. Then, with the with the see-through walls, I mean. A, yeah, a, but, a it, but it but it's black and white dots. Yeah. So okay. it was all black and white. So yeah. But then then in France for the French Open, they decided that what they would do is paint the floor and have a white wall. Yeah. Um, and this was at a place called the Cirque Divers Winter Circus. And they cut out a bit of the the ring that the clowns go on that, that surrounds. Um, to put the court in, they didn't cut out enough, so they had to start again, cutting it out. And and eventually, it was a day late. The court was up, and about three quarters of an hour before they were due to play, there were two men with rollers painting the court floor blue. And three quarters of an hour later, Frank Donnelly and Ali Aziz, two two players, were shown a white. They'd never seen a white ball, never practiced it. Before their match. Yep, before their match. And being ultra-professionals as they were, they, they looked. Okay, okay, let's go. Off they go. Of course, the, the paint wasn't dry. So within a few minutes, their feet were blue, the ball was blue, and it was it was a mess. But that was the start of it. That was the first white ball <laughs> yeah. match. Pro- first made proper match, yeah. And now here we are. Mm. And, and of course, then the court walls became coloured. Mm. And... It's moved on in mm. every way because there used to be many more 
fins and panels and Holding the support core. and it wasn't so sleek as it is now that's right so it's, yeah it's changed a lot the side door I mean, well, yes, and, and even even ducts to put put air in, or what, and glass floor is possible. You know, th- right. Things that we didn't think of those days. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. But yes, that was that was the evolution of it, and yeah. and, and it went on from from that French one. So, right. when did the first British Open happen, where men and women were in the same week? Um, the, same the, Brit- day. the British Open moved moved on to together. It probably was around seventy nine eighty. I'd have to look it up. I can't mm. remember. Mm. Um, but it quite early on in the piece. And was that considered this big revolutionary moment when you were combining it? Well, yes. I mean, we there were separate organisations: SRA for men and WSRA for women. Mm-hmm. Janet, but we worked Janet, together. Janet Morgan. Uh, uh, well, she was the she was the president. Yes, yeah, that's yes, right. Janet Shardlow, as, yeah. as she became. Yeah. Um, but we worked together. Mm. And Where was their office? Their office was in uh, Upper Richmond Road uh-huh. in Sheen in Surrey. It's, it's not. It's not. It's not far from London. But but not next door. Oh no! You no, never, no, no, you no, didn't no. see them regularly. No, it was very, very separate. They were very they were very protective of their position, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and we said to them, look, if we join together, they the girls are going to have the benefit of a greater, larger group group yeah. group. But it took. The sports council in England to, to threaten that they wouldn't have funding if they didn't join, and eventually they That's joined. Right. But but we ran joint events for a long, long yeah. time before that. Yeah. It was only squads and teams that were separate. separate. Yeah, yeah. And when WISPA was created in eighty three, eighty four, did that? Did were you a part of that? Did you see that happen? Well, I saw that happening in terms of liaison with them for the British Open, and because mm. uh, that was a new. Beyond that, no. Yeah, yeah. They, they were they 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 were a group, and, and obviously I knew them, mm. the people involved, but right. I had no direct yeah. contact with them other than other than that, and some occasionally would 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 advise each other and, mm. and so forth. Yeah. But it was it was it was one sort of part time woman, it's that sort of thing, and it was yeah. it was it was helped by the WSF, which was still called the ISRF in those yeah. days. Right. So they they helped them in they the same way as they helped. PSA and, and PSA yep. and WSF had the same executive director, a guy called Roger Eady, right. um, before he was told he had to choose one or the other, and he chose PSA. Right, right. So well, that's the way it went. Um, yeah, no, and, and he uh, he was uh, he was there when the merger with the WPSA leading to the, mm. to the PSA in '93. Um, so. By the end of the, you left in 94? 94, yeah. So by the end of the 80s, early 90s, your job must have felt completely different. I was. It, Were was, you in the same office? Say, well, we know we, we'd moved to um, a place called Acton mm-hmm. in, in West London. Why? Um, because the, the, the office that we had, which was part of um, a multi-sport office run by a sports uh, council, mm-hmm. it was called the CCPR, there were a number of other small sports there. It was it was too small for us, and we moved to Acton. Were you were you you had more than the four staff members? Oh, we by were then? up to about eight then. I mean, it was it was, it was massive, I and mean, you could hardly <laughs> count them. Um, you know, uh, and and then eventually, it moved to um, Manchester the National Centre in two thousand and two mm. when that was built for the Commonwealth Games. But they, they Games. stayed but in Acton, yeah, until then, yeah, until until mm. the Commonwealth Games. Yep. Um, so, what was that office like? How was it different? Well, it, it, it was bigger. It was it was basically a number of um, 
industrial units, warehouses that had been turned into offices. Hmm. Uh, and and it, uh, you know, it, was, it, it was affordable and it worked for us. What it meant was that the players, when they wanted to enter, had to get on the tube and come to us. What, what tube? But of course, by then, by then it was becoming more electronic. More electronic. What, what tube stop were you on? Uh, we weren't we weren't too close to any tube, but it was Acton Town. Yeah. That was the your nearest mm. one. Yeah. And did that change your life when the office moved in terms of your commute? And... When when the office moved, I actually drove to the office mm. before the rush hour in the morning because it wasn't so far from me. Mm-hmm. It, it it changed my life in as much as I had to think about what I wanted to bring to the office when I was on the tube mm. in town. Mm. When I was in the car. I just threw just in whatever in. I need, yeah, yeah. but I couldn't read in the way that I could. So it's a choice between carrying and reading. Yeah, yeah. Um, and computers came in. Uh, uh, people weren't emailing yet, but but the the computer did that. Well, change how you ran tournaments and to an extent, although most of it was hand hand, so, hand done. Yeah. yeah, but in about, I'm guessing ninety seven, ninety eight, from a whisper perspective, we. Mm we were starting to say, should we insist that all players have an email address to stop faxing them everything? And it was... There was, it was a debate about whether that was... It was a debate about whether... whether well, we, in those days, we didn't say it was too early, but whether all the players would get them. <laughs> but that was then. Amazing. Now they all do it on their phone. Of course, yeah. I mean, you, once, once we said, you've got to have an email address, everybody had an email address. Right. Yeah, you know, it was all Hotmail in those days, pretty much. That's um, right. AOL. Mm. I, I'm still on AOL. <laughs> <laughs> You're the last one. I, 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 of course, you know when when you get in early, you get your name as opposed to a number as well. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's amazing to um, yeah, 18 in a row. That's amazing. Mm. I mean, nobody will do that. You know that, that that'll be oh, no, rare. That's, that's 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 much more easily. That, that record might be broken. Yeah, I think that might be. <laughs> Outside the Glass would like to thank our producer, Grant Irving, our social media manager, Laurel Holly, and all our loyal listeners who have reviewed and rated the podcast, shared their enthusiasm for it on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and most importantly, has spread the word by talking about Outside the Glass with their squash buddies. 